Let's hear the word of the Lord now. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. In our New Testament reading, Matthew 5, we'll read verses 1 through 16, uh, particularly focusing in verses uh, 10 through 16, but reading all of it here. For context, Matthew 5, 1 through 16. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray now to him to bless it to us. Oh, Lord, our God, we pray that you would indeed bless your word to us. Give us life by it. Show us our Savior here and nourish us in him now by faith. Strengthen us 
Conform us to Christ, we pray, by Your Spirit's power with the Word. Amen. We've been looking at the Beatitudes now for some weeks, and we've seen that they're this description of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Remember where we are in Matthew. We're at the beginning of the Gospel still, and Jesus has only just begun His earthly ministry, and His his ministry begins with Him preaching that the kingdom of heaven is coming. And then as He starts preaching that message, the kingdom is coming, repent, He he starts with, with a portrait, painting a picture for us of what a citizen of that kingdom looks like. These aren't, um, the Beatitudes aren't a list of, of eight separate things that we are to do. It's, it's not a to-do list for us. Here's eight things. Go do them. Um, there, it's not, uh, it's not uh, a, a bunch of separate things or random things. No, this is a portrait that Christ is painting of a person, a, a, a person of someone who belongs to Jesus Christ. He's holding up this portrait and he's saying to us, this is the good life. This is what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is what a happy life, a joyful life of someone living under God's smile looks like. A kingdom, a kingdom life. Have you ever met someone who looks like this portrait? If you're in church this morning, you have. Uh, many, many of us. I look out and I see so many of you. And, and, and I see the portrait that Christ is painting. Yes, not perfectly, right? But, but it's there. There's, we, we see in ourselves by God's grace, Lord willing, and we see in each other, I hope, by God's grace, some poverty of spirit. Not, not being proud, but, but being beggars before God. And we see that, I hope, in, in ourselves and in each other. We, we see a sense of spiritual bankruptcy that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Right? We, we want to see that in one another. Uh, we, we see mourning for sin, some of, some of that. We, we see submission to God and, and gentleness with others and hungering and thirsting after righteousness, I hope, among one another. We see all the things that Christ portrays for us here. It's a beautiful portrait, isn't it? Of course, it's a portrait of Christ Himself. Yes, it's a citizen of the kingdom, but most of all, it's actually the King of the kingdom that we're seeing here. This is who He is. This is the glory of His grace and kindness to us. And He is the one who embodies most fully all these traits that He's he's painted here for us. They're in Him and they are to be in us as those who follow Him. But these traits, as we've seen, of, the, of a citizen of, of Christ's kingdom, um, these are not things that the world values. Christ puts a premium on them, but the world says that's worthless. Um, they cut against the grain of our hearts, don't they? We are not poor in spirit by nature. We're, we're, we're self-seeking, self-sufficient, and self-centered by nature. We're proud by nature. We, we don't seek first the kingdom of God and, and humble ourselves before Him and before others, but we pursue our own ambitions and we do what we want to do no matter what the Lord says. And, and our culture says, this is the good life. right? Not, not humbling yourself before God and, and seeking these things in the Beatitudes, but asserting yourself and pursuing your own dreams and desires regardless of what God says. And this conflict between what Jesus sets up for us here and what the culture says and what our own hearts tend to comes out clearest of all 
in the last beatitude. Verse 10, which we're looking at in particular this morning. The final beatitude brings out this contrast so starkly. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That, 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 is, that is ridiculous for Christ to say, isn't it? The good life, the life that, that everybody envies and wants to have, Jesus is saying, is the life that is marked by persecution, pain and suffering, a life of getting insulted and being marginalized and tortured for Christ. Jesus says, that is the kind of life you want, right? This is the kind of thing that, that we tend to, right, if there's, if there's, if there's a, a sting in the tail, we put it in the fine print. But Jesus writes it on a billboard. The good life is being persecuted for my sake, persecuted for righteousness. It's one of the defining marks of a Christian life. And how we respond to that is one of the key marks of our witness to the world. Jesus is telling us here, loved ones, that if we are following Christ faithfully, we will be persecuted. What will keep our hearts? Right, if we're going to be citizens of His kingdom, following Christ, trusting in Him, we're going to be persecuted. What's going to keep our hearts through that? What's going to sustain us through that? How do we respond to it? That's what Christ is teaching us here this morning. Three headings as we work through the passage together. The first one is, is this. Reviled for Christ. Verses 10 and 11. Reviled for Christ. When you hear the word persecution, what is it that comes to mind? Um, I typically think of, uh, uh, of one of the great stories of one of the reformers, perhaps someone like, uh, like Latimer or Ridley, these, these great English reformers who are burned at the stake for their faithfulness to Christ in 1555. Right, or maybe you think of um, someone like Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides, John G. Patton, who is surrounded by cannibals so much of the time, and he's suffering so much for the sake of Christ there. Or maybe you think of something current, right? Think of the persecuted church, as we call it. Uh, persecuted Christians in China, perhaps, under an authoritarian, totalitarian rule, right? And we do. We talk about the persecuted church as though it's some distinct entity from the church at large. This is typically, I think, what we think of as the persecuted church. But Jesus isn't speaking that way here, is he? For him, there is no persecuted church and then the other church. It's just all the persecuted church. Every citizen of his kingdom will be marked by this. The kind of persecution Christ has in mind seems to be broader than, than these, uh, these, uh, these, these most severe kinds. Of course, these are other kinds of persecution. Uh, uh, physical torture, imprisonment, even death that we hear stories of. But when Jesus speaks of persecution here, he tells us more what he means in verse 11. And it strikes close to home. Verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when they revile you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So he doesn't mention imprisonment or torture, though, of course, those things are included. But he, he pinpoints these things, uh, uh, being, being insulted, being reviled, being made fun of and mocked and, and, and ridiculed for your faith. Or he, he points out being, being uh, lied about, being slandered, having people drag your good name through the mud. 
He's not talking about being persecuted in these ways, being mocked in these ways for being mean or uptight or joyless, but um, or, uh, it's persecution, Jesus says, for righteousness' sake. Uh, this is what happens when you're at work and you don't join in the same kind of crude jokes the other people are, are, are joining in and you're teased for it or you won't watch the same TV show perhaps as your friends at school and they make fun of you for it. Or you are called a bigot because of your commitment to Christian biblical views on sex and marriage. Or these are all ways in which this happens to us. It happens in places when it, where it shouldn't really. It happens at Christian colleges. When students are made to stand up in front of the whole class and mocked for believing in the sovereignty of God. These are the types of things that we are familiar with. These aren't things that are strange to us. We are living in a culture increasingly opposed to Christ and opposed to his word and opposed to those who live like him. And so we are, uh, we are facing mockery for it and we will face being slandered for it. This is, though, this is the culmination of living the life that Jesus outlines for us here. A life that has these characteristics of the first seven Beatitudes is a life that will lead to this kind of persecution. Um, A life that is lived for Christ in this way doesn't sit well with those who don't live for Christ. Those who aren't Christians find a life like this unsettling. And Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He says, Real loyalty to Jesus creates friction in the hearts of those who only pay him lip service. Loyalty arouses their consciences and leaves them with only two alternatives, follow Christ or silence him. Ferguson is saying, if you live the life that Jesus outlines for you in the Beatitudes, then you're going to show your loyalty to Christ And that's either going to cause people to want to follow Christ themselves or to silence Christ by silencing you. This doesn't mean, of course, that we should go looking for persecution. That's not what Christ is telling us here. We shouldn't go hunt it down, seek it out. Um, But we shouldn't try to uh, ignore it or pretend it's not going to happen. And in fact, when it comes, we should embrace it. The Puritan Thomas Watson says, Put the cross in your creed. Get a suffering frame of heart, he says. Put the cross in your creed. Get a suffering frame of heart. How do you, how do, you do that? How do we get a suffering frame of heart so that we're ready for a persecution? Well, the first thing is simply adjust your expectations. We expect, I think, that life will be relatively easy and smooth sailing. But that's not what Christ says. He says persecution will come. You're going to be insulted. You're going to be slandered for following Christ. Expect it. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you. Be ready. Expect it. Paul says, 2 Timothy 3, all who desire, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Calvin says this, it's the ordinary lot of Christians to be hated by the majority of men if we are united with our Lord Jesus Christ and he was hated, if we're following Christ and he was persecuted, surely we also will be persecuted. So we should expect this, not be surprised by it. Secondly, we get a suffering frame of heart. We prepare our hearts for this by our union and communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and seeing what that means for us. Right? We read in the New Testament quite frequently that because of our relationship with Christ, because we've been brought into union with Him and cemented to Him, our sufferings are His sufferings. Right? As we suffer, it's participation and we're sharing in His suffering in some way. Not that we're making atonement by our sufferings by any means, but that, but that we, are, we are sharing in the same things He experienced. And this is a great comfort. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1.5, he says, As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So our, our, our thinking should be dominated by the fact that we're united with Christ and that my life is going to follow the same pattern as His life. First suffering and humiliation, then exaltation and glory. So if you want to be ready for persecution, get close to Christ. And get to know him better and love him more and, and uh, 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 get, get your heart more and more deeply into his heart. That is what will prepare you. This is the first thing Christ says, that we will face this persecution, this persecution for righteousness' sake. But then he says that it's not just that this is one of the defining marks of the kingdom, of being in the kingdom. But he also says how you respond to this persecution is a defining mark. And that's what we see next. In verses 10 to 12, we see that he says we are to rejoice in this. Our second heading, rejoicing in the kingdom. Rejoicing in the kingdom. Jesus says you're not supposed to simply respond to this persecution with a brave face, not just to be a stoic about it and, uh, uh, you know, just don't grumble, don't complain, shut your mouth and get through it. He doesn't say that. right? No, he says you're actually to rejoice in it. Be exceedingly glad, he says. Be thrilled when it comes. We see the apostles doing this, don't we? Acts chapter 5. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is the most unnatural thing in the world. That you would suffer persecution, that you'd be beaten, lied about, mocked and insulted, and then that you would rejoice in it, in, in, in God and, and in His kingdom and the reward that's yours in it. There, there, there's no amount of willpower that we can muster up to fulfill this command here. This is something that is utterly supernatural. It's only by the grace of God that we can rejoice when we suffer persecution. How does, God, how does God work this kind of rejoicing in us? Well, He does it by filling our hearts with a joy in the reward that's coming and a longing for the reward that is coming. He holds out this wonderful promise for us here. He says, rejoice. Be exceedingly glad. Right? Not, not, he doesn't say just because you should be, but He says, because your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He wants us motivated by, by this, that, that in our suffering, we take our place in his kingdom as one of his faithful soldiers. He compares us to the prophets of, of the Old Testament. Right? He says, when you suffer for my sake, you're just like all the saints who've gone before and have been faithful and they've, they've kept the good faith. 
and have received their reward. And when you get to heaven and you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and you see what He suffered as well, and when you see what the prophets and martyrs suffered for, would you want anything less than to have suffered for Christ's sake? Isaac Watts puts it like this. He says, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? But most of all, Jesus points us to the greatness of the reward that is ours in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't describe this in detail here. He tells us just a couple simple things about it. He says it's great. It's a great reward. It's not a meager reward. It's not, uh, it's not, um, it's not a disappointment of any, by any means. It's an abundant reward. God has promised and committed Himself to blessing us beyond the scope of anything we can imagine in His kingdom. He has promised to lavish on us a heaven full of, full of life and joy and blessing forever. Rutherford says that we're a well-spent journey those seven deaths lay between. It will be so worth it to come into the kingdom of heaven and see the face of God and participate in all His goodness and all His blessings. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And then Jesus says, not only is this reward great, he says it's, it's a heavenly reward. And he's talking, of course, about the kingdom of heaven consummated. When we are come into God's own presence and he dwells with us forever and ever. Loved ones, this is, um, this is what it comes down to then. Um, if your reward is in heaven, and if your heart is in love with God and in the kingdom of God and everything that he's promised you in that kingdom, then you will rejoice in persecution. Because, right, if, if someone insults you, you won't become bitter or angry because, because your hope is in God and your reward's in God. If someone takes something from you, you're not, going to be, you're not going to be crushed by it because your hope is in what can't be taken from you in the kingdom of heaven. And, and you know that God will never revile you. God will never mock you. He will love you with an everlasting love. So, 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 so what, in a sense, if, if someone takes that from you? No one can take God's love from you. But if your heart is in love with the world, in love with what you get from other people, in love with the praise of men, then, then when people do mock you, insult you, or lie about you, then yes, yes, it will crush you and break you because, because you've been looking to that for your reward all along. Right? The only way we can rejoice in the midst of persecution, is if our hearts are overwhelmed with a love for God and a longing for the kingdom that is coming. Because persecution can't threaten that. It can't take that. It only confirms that you are Christ and that the kingdom is yours. So, loved ones, loved ones, Fill your heart with a love for Christ and, and stoke your affection for Him. Pour, pour the fuel of the Word on the fire of your heart to inflame it in its love for God. Strengthen it now by the Word. Strengthen your affection for Him now and, 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 and your longing for heaven now so that when persecution does come, your heart will be uh, strong in the face of it. And you'll be able to rejoice even because of your joy in God and in His kingdom. So, with this, Jesus puts the finishing touches on the portrait. 
the final piece of the picture is that the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is the one who rejoices in the midst of persecution for Christ's sake. Rejoices in the kingdom of heaven even when he's suffering on behalf of that kingdom. But what's the point of the picture? What's the point of this portrait that Jesus has painted for us? And and what's the point of, of our living it out? Jesus doesn't want this wrapped up and put in the attic. He wants it on display. It's got a purpose. It's supposed to accomplish something. And what it is, is a witness to Jesus and a witness to the Father. A witness to the artist, we might say. It's uh, to reflect God and bear witness to the world. So this is our third heading, Reflecting the Father, verses 13 to 16. So Jesus finishes the portrait, and then he turns in verses 13 to 16, and he doesn't abruptly change his subject here. He's actually taking what he's just said, and he's applying it uh, to, to our witness. He's, he's saying, here's what it means uh, for the world, for your outreach, for your, for your witness. And he uses two points here, two illustrations to drive, to drive his point home. First, he compares his disciples to salt. He says, if you bear the traits of the kingdom of heaven, like we've just outlined, then you'll be salty. What does he mean? Well, salt in the ancient world is used for a preservative in a hot culture like theirs, a hot climate without refrigeration. Food would spoil very quickly. So you put salt on it, and that preserves it. It makes it last much longer. And so we, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're in the earth to slow down the decay, slow down the moral rot. And uh, this, is, this is part of our purpose. As we bear the marks of the kingdom, we're preserving. We're slowing down the corruption. We, we can see signs, we see marks of this in history. It's no accident that um, in, uh, we, we see um, the church throughout history having this preserving effect on, on the world around them. Some argue the only reason England didn't experience the same bloody revolution that France did was because of the revivals under the preaching of men like Whitfield and Wesley. And we've seen the effects of true Christianity in our own country as well over many generations. So Jesus says, you're salt, you preserve. But salt isn't just a preservative, it's also for flavor, of course. A dash of salt can make all the difference. Uh, between something being bland and something being quite delicious. And so Jesus is telling his church, he's telling us, you need to have a distinct flavor about you, a salty flavor about you, that, that just as you can tell when, when a dish has salt in it or it doesn't, we should be able to tell when there are Christians in a culture or when they're not. That we should be able to tell that, that, that the Christians are there. In other words, we should, we should stand out. We should be noticeable. Jesus warns us not to lose our saltiness, uh, not, 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 to, not, not to lose it. Salt can't become unsalty, but it can become diluted. It can become uh, mixed with impurities. This would happen in, in Christ's day, that the salt was often mixed with impurities, and the, the good salt would get leached out of it, and then it would be worthless, and it would be thrown out into the streets. And, and, and when we stop living like citizens of his kingdom, marked by the Beatitudes, marked by these things, and we live like the rest of the world, that's when we get diluted and we lose our saltiness and we become worthless. Right? If, if the more the church becomes like the world and less like the church, the more useless the church becomes. We need to be 
the church He's called us to be and keep the savor that we should have, the savor unto life that we should have. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. He says, this is who you are. You are this. This is what God has made you to be. You are different and distinct. Don't lose your saltiness. The second metaphor he uses is light. Verses 14 to 15, he says, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. It's a good metaphor. Um, he, he, he takes the metaphor of light, he breaks into the two more metaphors. One is a city and one is a lampstand. Growing up in Herman on a cloudy night, I could see the city lights visible from Bangor. Uh, I couldn't see the city itself. It was a little too far for that. But I could see on, on a cloudy night the glow of the city lights uh, there on the horizon. And in Jesus' day, he didn't have, of course, electric lights, so the city's not going to be as bright. But on a dark night, so pitch black that you can't see the hand in front of your face, and you, you, you look and you'd see where the city was because they'd have all the, the lamps, the oil lamps burning, the candles burning, the fires burning, and the windows. And so you could see the city. You couldn't hide it, that city on a hill. And just like that, he, he points out that, that, that the same thing with a lamp, that, that you light a lamp, you put it on a, on, on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. And that's what its purpose is. You don't put a blanket over it or a basket over it. You don't... You don't uh, block out the light, but you turn on, you light the light so that it gives light to the whole house. What's the point? It's similar to the one he made with the salt, isn't it? That we're to be noticeable. The church is to, is to hold forth the light of the gospel of Christ by living these distinct lives, these, these so unlike the world lives that value things so differently. Loved ones, we're living in a, in a dark world, right? It's pitch black with sin where we, we are confused and, and people don't know God and they don't know themselves and they don't know what God has asked of them. And then we've, we've lost a sense of right and wrong. And we're blinded by sin. And under the dark shadow of death, that's the world. And we're to be the light of the gospel of Christ. Maybe you're thinking, though, well, wait a second. Isn't Jesus the light of the world? That's what he says. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. And that's what we read already, prophesied, Isaiah 42, verse 6. God says about the Messiah, I will give you as a light for the nations. So, so what is this business of the church being the light of the world? Right? Our witness is not, is not that bright, is it? Right? It's, it's mixed, and, it, and, and we do lose some of our, our saltiness. We do cover up our, our, our witness from time to time. And uh, we, we do fail and sin. So many hypocrites, right, in the church, we, we, we say. And so, so wouldn't it make so much more sense that Christ is the light of the world? Right? He's the righteous one. He's the one who keeps these beatitudes so perfectly. Well, it's true, yes, He is the light of the world. That is, that is exactly why the church is also the light of the world, though, right? It's because He is our Savior and He is our King. And we're following Him, and, and we are filled with His grace. So we are the light of the world in this, in that we show forth Christ and bear witness to Him. The light that, that we are called to be here is not the light in ourselves, the light that shows anything about us. It's the light of Christ. 
It's, it's His greatness, His glory, His character that we are to reflect. This is why Jesus says that men will see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Because the light isn't coming from ourselves. It's not our good deeds, period. It's the good deeds He's worked in us as a reflection of Christ that are only to the glory of His name. Loved ones, this is not simply what we are commanded to be. This is who we are in Christ. This is what we've been made in Christ. He has made us His own. He's, he's, he's made us to be citizens of His kingdom by His grace. So don't cover up that witness. Don't live like the world. Live as Christ calls you to live, as a faithful witness to Him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow Him. Loved ones, Christ has transformed us and He's made us His own and saved us by His grace. So, so, so live like it. Live as He's made you to be and called you to be. A portrait. Yes, a work in progress, but a portrait that's being painted by God's hand uh, more and more to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. Make that your ambition so that others may see your good deeds and glorify not you, but your Father. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us, your kindness to us. Thank you for Christ, our Savior, our hope, our righteousness. Make us more like Him. Keep us in union with Him and make us to walk more and more like Him. And help us to be a bright and shining light, we ask in His name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper together, we're going to sing again together. Our next hymn is Lamb, Precious Lamb. Let's stand and sing this together.
for those who seek such treasure trove of blessings. These blessings of all kinds is this. From nowhere else can, than him can they be gone. For they are ours in Christ alone. That's what we come to in the Lord's table. Christ and all that is ours in, in Christ. All the blessings that are ours in Him. And as we do so, we're, we're refreshed, we're, we're strengthened as we meditate on the sacrifice, the justification of our sins, His righteousness. We're also strengthened for new covenant obedience to Him. Because we've been united to a whole Christ, not half Christ. We, we receive all His benefits, justification and sanctification too. Uh, so we find your strength as, as we feed our Him, we find strength for new. But this is what the supper of the Lord is about. Without, without partaking in Christ. So as you come to the Lord's table, uh, keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. And anticipate the consummation of the ages. And the returns when we have face-to-face communion with him. In his kingdom, forever, the wedding feast of the Lamb. My privilege as a minister of Christ to invite all who are right with God church, through faith in Christ, to come to the Lord's table. If you've received Christ as your Savior, you're resting on Him and nothing, no one else for your salvation. If you're a member in good standing, a faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-teaching church, if you've been baptized and you're a communicant member, then I invite you to come and partake of the Lord's table. If you're, if you're walking with repentance and obedience to the Savior, with your eyes on Him, this supper is it's also my responsibility to, uh, to to warn anyone who would come to the table in an unworthy manner. If you're not walking in repentance, if there's a sin you're hanging on to and not, not repenting of, then I, I encourage you don't come to the table. Come and talk to myself or one of the elders afterwards so that we can work through that and you can, you can repent and you can come to the table next time. Uh, also, if
that we would rest in Christ and hold fast to our, to our Savior. And you feast our hearts on Him. We might draw strength and nourishment from our glorious and all sufficient Savior. As we pray for this. Amen. Our Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to His disciples. As I, ministering in His name, give this bread to you. same manner, our Lord Jesus also took the cup after supper, and after having given thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you.
Let's stand now and sing together. Our next hymn is O Church Arise. strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies. An army born whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to raise